Michelle Meyer is Vice President, North American Real Estate and Facilities for Oracle. And Michelle, I'm reading that you control 5 million square feet, 100 locations nationwide. Um, that's correct. And I would also add that um, people such as Dan help provide services to us, like property management. And Ralph here, um, you know, sometimes we're able to do business together. We were just talking about an opportunity in perhaps Connecticut. Yeah. yeah, excellent. So you guys are doing this business could be very <laughs> productive <laughs> for us. That's the way it is in my town. Okay, we got a deal. <laughs> and Ralph and Tug, we are a national real estate transaction manager through Nestle Waters. I was trying to figure out how big that portfolio is. Well, it's about, uh, it. Uh, I think it's about three and a half million square feet. Okay, about one hundred and forty properties. A lot of them are springs because we bottled water. Not this stuff. Don't drink this stuff. <laughs> Ice mountain water is your where, where is it, Ralph? I thought you were bringing something from the group. <laughs> so what I wanted to do is I wanted to give you guys, I wanted you to leave in the next 50 minutes understanding the history of corporate real estate. So rather than making this loose and unstructured, I want to give you guys what I think are the big trends in corporate real estate, what you should know, and hopefully that's going to give you a basis to say, is this where I want to be? This is the kind of work I want to do, and hopefully you'll also get a sense of where are the opportunities in corporate real estate. So to kind of give you a historical overview, this I'm going to go through very quickly. Starting at the very beginning, corporations. It was It's really interesting. Corporations have actually existed since ancient times. They go back to the time of the Romans, believe it or not. And the Indians had corporations. They were shareholders. They got together. They had legal entities. Very interesting. But the modern corporation really starts and gets its, its legs in the 19th century. And it particularly coming into the 20th century is when the, there were these enabling laws that really kind of liberalized the way corporations were set up. And two of the first states were Delaware and New Jersey, which is why when you get your credit card bills, you see so many them registered in Delaware, but that's an interesting factoid. But to go to bring it to real estate, essentially corporations were set up as what we call holding companies for the longest time, going right through to the early 20th century into the modern era. Right up, I would say, to the 80s, they were holding companies, which means centralized, very centralized commands with completely independent business units. Are you guys? Old enough to remember any of this when corporations were really disparate, like Honeywell or General Mills, where everything was just a completely separate company? We're still like that. <laughs> it's, not, it's not ancient history. Not though. ancient history. Okay. And at that point, where was real estate within that, uh, that structure? Yeah, well, real estate is in each of these separate entities. In fact, in 19. I joined American Express in 92, which wasn't that long ago. And they had no real estate department, even though they're a worldwide organization. And uh, so there was some professionalism that came to it, but that was that way. Nestle is a uh, international company and uh, you know, has Ralston Prina, it has Dryer's Ice Cream, it has uh, the Nestle Water Group. And each one of those groups still operates very separately from the others such that uh, just only this past year, we actually started to have real estate uh, house those groups in the same location. Mm -hmm. so. And this is really interesting because the, it's, the one thing about corporate real estate, if you remember nothing else, is that it was a huge watershed that happened in the 90s with corporate real estate. And all of a sudden, overnight, these corporate real estate departments, which used to be hundreds of people, Ralph, how big is your department at uh, Nestle Waters? There's uh, about three people, three key people, a couple you know, people that kind of come and go as uh, you know clerical, but basically three people run the uh, department. Michelle, what happened? Why the 90s? What, what was going on? Well, you know, some of it gets back to corporations taking a look at their balance sheets, right, and determining, hey, we don't need these heads. Um, hence, we go to our service <laughs> provider partners, mm -hmm. and you know, again, what happened is you saw a lot of outsourcing taking place. 
companies reevaluating the fact that this isn't our core competency. You know, real estate is something we can look to someone else to provide that expertise for. And again, you know, that transition of headcount from the company's payroll to someone else's payroll. So, Dan, talk about outsourcing. I remember the 90s, they were saying that it was growing at 25% a year. It was huge. And is it still, where, where is outsourcing uh, today? Are we still seeing that migration from the internal corporate real estate department to the service provider like you? Yeah, let me start back into uh, kind of the beginning trends of it when, you know, I joined uh, what was uh, LaSalle Partners uh, in, in 1994. And, and that was a time, you know, we're in a cyclical business, and as, as everyone knows, and that was coming out of a, a, a difficult downturn, late 80s, early 90s. A lot of, that was a lot of overbuilding that had occurred uh, and, and so forth. Uh, and uh, I came from uh, IBM. Uh, and I was an IBM marketing and sales guy. I had nothing to do with, uh, with real estate. But the reason that LaSalle Partners at the time hired me is because they liked the corporate skills that they had, that I had, and they were beginning to build up this larger organization that could approach big corporations uh, with teams of people that had corporate experience to say, look, we can be your outsourcing partner uh, that, that we can come in and help you run your real estate uh, department. Uh, so, so that's, you know, kind of the start of it in, in the last 14, 15 years, it, your time, you're exactly right from, from, from our experience. Today, uh, we're seeing that trend continue, uh, and it has continued. Uh, in difficult economic times, uh, outsourcing heats up even more. Uh, so uh, uh, the, the, we're seeing the trend continue and, 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 and will, would continue in the future. So for the students in the room, explain how it works. Are you guys like consulting teams? Do you have like a techie and you have a leasing broker and you got a guy who's like more strategy? Mm -hmm. And, and how does it work when you're well, working with Well, it, it depends on, on what the client uh, requirements are, and it depends on what that client uh, may be looking for. Uh, in some cases, uh, I'll give you an example, uh, Bank of America is a very large client of ours. We have hundreds of people, that uh, many of whom are on site with, with the bank, uh, with Bank of America, that handle their uh, facility management work. As an, I'll give you a, an example here in Chicago. When B of A came to town and bought LaSalle Bank, ABN LaSalle, LaSalle had a number of assets that they owned. Well, B of A is now in there and taking over those assets, and our people are, are running those facilities. So uh, facility management, property management, transaction management uh, are examples of things that we're, we're doing uh, for these corporate clients. And depending on the complexity of that client, uh, depends on the structure that we put in place, but we'll put something called a CRM, a client relationship manager in place, a very senior person in some cases, just to give you an idea of the seniority of some of these people. Our CRM at Motorola used to be the CFO for the Americas in our business. So, you know, a very senior uh, person uh, who had, uh, she had tremendous experience in the business that we needed to put that level of person in place in order to earn the trust and confidence of that corporate client to, to control all of our resources around the world. Now, there's other examples of smaller client relationships where it might be just transaction-based in a region of the country. So those teams might be a little bit smaller. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it depends on the scope. Michelle, do you outsource everything? Or are there certain things you just can't outsource? Well, I would say our corporation tends to be an anomaly when you talk about outsourcing for the simple fact that all the services that Dan just cited from facilities management to transaction management, we do tend to do a lot of those in-house and we prefer to think of ourselves as out-tasking uh, certain things. So for instance, we definitely will take advantage of the brokerage community. We have preferred provider relationships. Um, I often go to JLL when I need property management expertise. Like, for instance, we just did an acquisition, and I inherited two very old buildings of 230,000 square feet, which I really didn't want to be managing, but um, you don't always have choices sometimes. Mm -hmm. So, again, I called up JLL and said, hey, you know, you guys have a niche um, in this uh, particular uh, 
service really would appreciate you sending me that resource and managing these properties for me. So, like I said, we do do a lot of things in-house. We're very unique that way. You heard Ralph talk about the fact that he has, you know, three people on his staff. I have 171, mm -hmm. um, but that includes people who perform office services to people who truly deal with real estate. So why did you take those jobs in-house? Were you not getting the quality you wanted, or did you not have control? Um, some of it is history, right? And historically, we've used vendors. We haven't always received the service levels that we wanted. We also found in some cases, depending on the particular service that we were contracting for, that there were contractual limitations as to what that particular, you know, again, service provider employee could do for us. Whereas in-house, uh, especially working for a high-tech company, we tend to ask people to do a whole lot of everything. Um, some of the things I may do on a day-to-day -day basis may not seem wholly real estate related, and I'll give you a great example. I had a conference call last night with people from our global information technology group. They're the ones that you know run the cabling and make sure our systems are all working, and I'm trying to coach them as to how to have this senior level meeting. Now, is that really real estate related? No, but it is, is, is it an integral part of my job and an objective that I need to accomplish? Absolutely. And like I said, I think the service providers, they've gotten better because people in, in my shoes have gone to work for them. Um, so if anything, I think the bar continues to get raised. But for us as a corporation, um, it also gets down to some cost implications. And I do pay a premium when I have to outsource or outtask. Sure. I want to go back to what Dan was saying about CRM, and I think you guys pay attention to that acronym because we just had a panel um, about recruitment. Suzanne Cannon, actually from DePaul, was on it, and we uh, and we had uh, two major global service providers, and we I asked them specifically, tell me the richest sources of jobs in the real estate industry within the corporate sector. Number one was CRM. He said that is a growing field and that skill set is really in demand. Would you guys agree with that? I'd absolutely agree with it, whether it's internally or again um, through the service providers, because the one thing that customers always want, they want that person who's going to be able to interface with them, understand their needs, be able to explain the finances, even me as a client, okay? I demand from my service provider that I have that single point of contact that go-to person who's going to know everything about my business at Oracle and how those services might pertain. So what does that CRM person actually, what skills have we talked about, Ralph? What, what, uh, what does a CRM person look like? Well, um, you can read it in the, uh, this magazine because he's always pushing it. <laughs> <laughs> No, if you want to know what's going on in any any industry, including uh, well, corporate, I can real attest estate, to that. <laughs> you, you look at the uh, the magazines, right? If you want to know what's going on in architectural, you you read the architectural magazine. And of course, that's the on the cover of this magazine is the client relationship <coughs> program, the client relationship management, and they talk about what skills and what functionality client relationship uh, management has. And you know, number one is that you're a problem solver. You, know, you can actually talk to a customer, find out what's going on, understand the way their business operates, and come up with a solution. Um, in fact, some of the best people in corporate real estate uh, sometimes come from within the business unit because they understand you know, how their business operates. I'll take a good example is we bottle uh, water. And so it's a very complex process. And, and, and you know, I don't understand it, even though I have a great real estate background. Now, people that bottle water, also, they, they have real estate knowledge. You know, everybody's sold their house. So sometimes I have to, you know, for me to be able to deliver service to them, I have to know their business as well as know real estate. And if I don't know how they're operating their business, uh, they will just go off and do their own thing. And, uh, and they do. So I think a, a clear understanding of how the business operates, problem solving, communication skills are critical. You know, um, 
Uh, customer service skills are critical. You, know, you really have to treat these people like gold. You can't say, oh, well, we're, we're working for the same company. No, they're your customer. And so, you know, you know treat them like, uh, you know, the shoe salesman at Nordstrom. You know, treat them like gold. Mm -hmm. Do you guys have questions? Tom, let me just add one yeah. thing to that, and Please. that is, uh, uh, I think something else that, that goes with that is very important is, is the CRM is is taking a real strategic approach and an innovative approach to what they're doing as well, and you know it's it's very basic in our business that uh, real estate the real estate strategy has to match the business strategy. You can't have a real estate strategy. Uh, and you know, really leading and the business strategy following, and that's a very difficult thing to do in an asset class that's that's very fixed. That's difficult to to uh, dispose of in some cases. So, uh, the art of of the business is really to get getting that intersection right as much as possible, uh, and that really gets into other things like. Uh, should you own a particular uh, asset, maybe a corporate headquarters, uh, or which assets should you lease? Which leases should be short-term versus long-term? All of those answers are into, well, what's the business doing? And a good CRM is really understanding the business, where it's going, uh, and, and, and making the recommendations based on the, on, the, on the business plan. And so does that mean you have to understand HR? You've got to understand finance? got to understand development to an extent. I mean, what's the skill set so that the people in this room can go out and say, okay, I'm going to go on the CRM track? Well, I think that the skill is understanding the business and the direction of the business. We have all of our CRMs sit on the earnings call of our clients to understand what's going on financially, to listen to the senior executives, to, to really understand what's going on with that business, to hear if there's a merger, if there's an acquisition, if, if there may be a, a downsizing occurring, uh, so that you, know, you can anticipate uh, uh, the real estate impact of that changing business plan. So it, it's strategic, it's relationship management uh, to, to really listen to that business unit or listen to the corporate real estate executive about what's going on in the business to be able to, to put the appropriate plan in place. Okay. I want to hit three trends that I think are, if I had to leave you with, these are the trends that I think are really in corporate real estate that what people are thinking about, you guys may have, feel free to jump in, but one I think, one I think is this whole notion of the workplace. We have a huge demographic shift in this country. Um, you know, we have a generation now called the Echo Boomers. They also call them Next Gen. But 76 million people, as big as the baby boom generation, and these kids are now, they're not kids, I mean, they're some of the people in this room, they are now turning, uh, they're not graduating from college, they're entering the workforce. So back to you guys, is workplace, um, a major, major part of what you do, and how is this generation changing the way real estate uh, is, is, is created and put together? And uh, Ralph, you want to start? Well, um, our business is a little bit different because our plants um, are, you know, it's not the focus is the, the workplace. Uh, but I'm a good example. Um, I work out of my home, and I handle the United States and uh, my corporation is in uh, Greenwich, Connecticut. And, you know, I've done a, a fair amount of work in, you know, uh, work, uh, work, you know telecommuting, working from home and so forth. I mean, it's just such a, a wave that's going on that uh, there's some companies that they expect 80% of their employees to basically be working from home. So they only bring, the workplace now is about sharing you know, and, and ge actually generating ideas as opposed to where you where you do your work. So, I can I can certainly see that occurring, um, and um, you know, our salespeople, uh, you know, our sales uh, departments and, and uh, workplaces have, have certainly <coughs> downsized um, to the point where we want the people on the road instead of uh, working uh, from an office. Uh, so. Um, again, we're not heavily office-driven. Uh, uh, That's not a big piece of what we do. Our biggest piece is just manufacturing. So 
I don't see that trend as much, but I have seen it in the past with American Express and other companies where they want to just reduce, reduce, reduce down uh, the office space because it, it makes the company more money. Michelle, I've got to believe that Oracle probably is going after this generation. We, we are, and what's interesting is it's not so much about reduce, reduce office space. Certainly, it's a metric on which we get measured, but it's all about technology, mobility, what does the workforce demand? What do they expect? I mean, let's face it, okay? Technology-wise, 20 years ago, radical difference than today, okay? I'm willing to bet everybody here, you know, has, has an iPod, okay? Probably has some sort of cellular device you can transmit messages, um, whatever the case may be. Um, you know, I travel with the laptop. I, too, have the, you know, Palm phone, I can, you know, pretty much work 24 by 7. That's the way of the world. So when people come to a place, a place of employment, I think their expectations are very different. They're not looking necessarily for that office or that cubicle that they can customize, personalize, and call home. They're in, they're out, they want to get their work done, um, and they're just as happy to do it somewhere else or do it at home. And I think it's the corporation's job to figure out how to facilitate that. Dan, what does the workplace of the future look like? Or maybe it's the present look like? I would say that from, from an office perspective uh, that uh, we're seeing a lot of our corporate clients uh, think a lot differently about how they use their, their space. Uh, this whole concept of, of work is not about the space. I mean, that's a different mindset than what when I you know, came through IBM years ago. You know, everyone had a, an office on the perimeter and that was your space and, you know, don't go near it. Uh, today you're seeing a lot more open uh, office and we're in a, a completely open office environment. We've got a lot of hoteling stations where people can come in and plug in and, 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 and be nimble, take their laptop, take their, their Blackberry and, and, and go out and do different things. But and the reason that we're seeing that is because technology has enabled that uh, enabled in uh, an alternative workplace environment thanks to people like Oracle and, and others. Uh, and in addition, uh, corporate real estate organizations have become more sophisticated to realize that if, they, if their portfolio gets smaller by taking less square feet, that money is going to drop right to the bottom line of the organization. And it's not to suggest that you're trying to do anything detrimental to the workforce. You're not. But uh, technology has allowed a different way of working, and I think you'll continue to see this trend toward alternative workstation, uh, work, workplace environments, uh, and technology has been a big driver of it. I, I read this, that there are four different types of workers uh, right now. There's anchor, sitting at your desk, campus mobile, meaning you're moving around your corporate campus, traveling mobile, you're on the road a lot, distributed, you don't come in at all. Really interesting. So, is the um, is this generation different behaviorally? Are they are the patterns different? Do you need to do you need to be in a twenty four hour environment? Do you need to be in a different kind of space that has exposed beams and wiffle ball machines and you know whatever it is? We've, we've heard all of these alternative officing kind of patterns, more teaming areas as opposed to cubes and. Is it, is it a very different way of working? I definitely agree on the teaming areas. And, and again, when you start talking things like, you know, wiffle balls and ping pong tables and pool tables, I think there's a certain segment, at least within our population, where we do make those accommodations. And typically that's for our developers, also known as engineers. Um, the idea is these are the people who help develop the software. Um, they're the creative juices that you know, again, determine our direction. So because they're the ones who are in the office all the time, we will do some very special things for them, okay? Give them their customized cappuccino maker, okay? You know, sky's the limit. Um, but, but <laughs> I know. Um, but the salespeople, again, similar to you know, what Dan alluded to, you know, there are some people that are of the old school belief that in order to be productive, you need to be in the office every day. I don't think that's no longer the case. Again, people get measured by objectives, not by physically showing up. 
Yeah, and I think that's a trend that has changed. Uh, you know, in in prior uh, uh, generations, I think uh, FaceTime was really important. You know, who can be in the office the longest? Well, I mean, that's kind of silly. At the end of the day, are you getting your are you are you getting your work done? Are you being productive? Are you you adding value to the organization? I think that's the way companies are thinking more than they used to. And the other thing I'd say, just to as an add-on to that, is again, just talk about technology, right? These things like web conferences. Okay, um, we are even rolling out something called telepresence, which is a technology from Cisco, very similar to high-end, high-scale video conferencing where I can sit there and in almost real time, because again, the technology's improved and bandwidth speeds, that sort of thing, have a conversation with someone anywhere around the world and again, visually be able to see that person as well as communicate at the same time. Well, the, one of the big things is green and sustainability. And um, we've heard about it, we saw Al Gore's film, we've, we've, it's been all over the press. I, 39 out of the Fortune 100 now have sustainability reports. What are sustainability reports? Well, I don't know. I, I can't speak for specifically what a sustainability report is, but I, I will tell you that what we're seeing uh, out there for, from an investor side and a, an occupier side, and what we have seen occur is uh, over the last few years is a real demand that started with the government for uh, uh, sustainability lead certified type buildings and in their RFPs if they were to occupy space they would ask a an owner of a building tell us where you are what's your philosophy on green and lead and so on and so forth and we didn't see the investors do a lot about it the owners of the buildings because they just thought well this will this will come and go and so on and so forth but then the corporates got on board and, and made commitments to being carbon neutral and in doing other things in their organizations. And in their RFPs, more and more, they're demanding landlords uh, provide uh, uh, information and timelines as to when they might be lead EB existing building certified, what kind of cleaning products are used, uh, and so on and so forth. So uh, the trend is really here to stay. We've built up a big global sustainability practice to advise our investors, our owners of real estate, but then our corporates as well. Michelle and Ralph, do you guys do a sustainability report? Yeah, we, you know, that's key for us because we take water out of the ground, and of course, uh, we uh, spend a lot of time proving that we're only taking out as much as that can be replenished. So sustainability is like so important to Nestle Waters. It's the focus of the whole company right now. And in fact, they've just hired us as a director of sustainability and looking at it through all of our uh, different uh, lines. So uh, you know, if there's anything that you want to learn from an you know, educational standpoint, you know, I think, and that's going to help promote yourself in the, the marketplace, is understanding sustainability, understanding the whole industry, um, because I think that's a skill that uh, people are looking for. So. Is that a lot of science oriented, like more science courses? Because I know they don't offer uh, any like business courses for sustainability. And I'm thinking like I really want to go to the green like direction, incorporate that into development and stuff. Like science for the uh, consulting guys, for that you were saying. Like, who are you looking for to hire from? Like uh, college or? There are certifications that you can get. You may not get a degree, but there are certifications uh, available. There's a U.S. Green Building Council, Council, mm -hmm. uh, and you might want to check them out. USGBC.org. Yeah. Velma uh, also offers some online courses just to give you an overview about sustainability and some of the green initiatives as they pertain to buildings. Yeah, I was just going to look up something. There's Next week there's a big, I, I don't know how open this may be, uh, there's a big conference in town at the Hilton on Tuesday the 8th. Uh, it's a big green sustainability conference, and maybe there's an opportunity as a student to, to get in and learn more about that. But uh, it is, an, is a huge trend uh, and one that is, is not going anywhere. And I agree with, with Ralph that it, it, you know, it's, uh, it's going to offer a lot of career opportunities. And this has implications whether you're going into the investment side of the business or the development side of the business, property management. I mean, it, this is a very, very major, major 
trend that I don't think it's going to go back. No. Um, if uh, you want to find out more about it, you'll usually check online Chicago Green Center for Technology. It's on Sacramento. And there's a 445. It's the home of USGBC in Illinois. You can learn more about the programs. Just uh, they offer the accreditation of Leeds AP. you know, I mean, a corporation, a, a developer actually gets credits towards certifying their building as a LEED certified building. So for example, a base level LEED certification is 29 points. And then from there, they give you more of a higher level. So you get to gold and platinum and platinum is, is, is in. So like 300 North LaSalle, major building that Heinz is doing on the, on the river right now is a platinum certified LEED building. That is going to translate into that building being a place where corporations are going to want to come because that they get, they can put that in their sustainability report that yes we are leasing at 300 North LaSalle and you know it has all these incredible things like you know low floor water features and low E glass and these incredible things that we are very socially responsible. I'm curious just to find out. Um, also, are you a student in Paul? No, I'm a student in. Oh, I see. Okay. Because there was a very large uh, sustainability conference that we just actually had in the Green Building that held at the University of Florida. So there was a tremendous amount of um, information available. There was uh, 15,000 people there this year. Wow. Yeah. It was a very large conference for a couple days, two days, So you may want to research pamphlets and brochures and services. Yeah. One of the things that I'm hearing is that corporations are now reporting what they call a triple bottom line. And this has been out there for a few years, but this, the, the triple bottom line is people, planet, and profits. Profits. Profit. So it's economic, it's environmental, and then it's human resources. And reporting on that and having to quantify what they're doing in those terms is a very important trend. It's not just it's not just money. It's not just dollars and cents. Um, more questions from you guys? Anything? Um, Tom and Dan, both of you have clients that are in the banking industry. You know, the bank is, banking industry is challenged with mergers and slow uh, margin or low margins. Um, what are you doing to anticipate their future? Great uh, question, and actually, I want to turn that over to Dan and Michelle because Michelle's the queen of it. mergers and acquisitions. In case you didn't know this, <laughs> how many? So I counted before I came <laughs> because I knew you were going to ask me this question. Since June of 2005, we've done 41 acquisitions, and I have seven pending right now. Mm. There we go. There we go. <coughs> how do you possibly integrate 41 companies in three years? and all those real estate portfolios and create anything that makes sense. Well, here's what's interesting about the tech industry. We're fortunate in that where we tend to locate, many of our competitors do as well. So it actually, in most cases, uh, can be a pretty easy decision to try and fold them uh, into our offices. There's also certain uh, tax advantages that receive too from being able to do that relatively quickly. So the minute we get to the point where we've actually combined the two legal entities, uh, the gun's pretty much to my head to get people moved as quickly as possible. The other, I guess, positive thing I would say is many of these companies, the employees were used to a much more flexible work environment, so there's not been an excessively high demand for space. So that too helps us in our integration efforts. Um, sometimes I end up retaining real estate I would much rather dispose of, mm -hmm. but there's political reasons as to why I might need to hang on to it, and I can cite you two examples in this regard. One was in an area of Toronto, happened to be west of downtown, and it was a group of developers. And if you recall earlier, I shared with you that developers are really special people at Oracle. 
and it's all about commute times. So in this particular instance, they felt that their commute to our nearest office location was going to be too restrictive on them. So it actually went all the way up to our senior management and we did all sorts of cost analyses, you know, what we'd get from a sublease income standpoint versus, you know, retaining the space and we determined at the end of the day we would let them stay there, but um, they'd have to consolidate and we would be putting some space on the sublease market. In another case, uh, a company we recently acquired within the last 12 months, they had a headquarters in Stamford, Connecticut. Happened to be two very old buildings, one 30 years old, one 40 years old. Um, our space requirement was much less than the total square footage of these two buildings, but because our corporate philosophy at times uh, can be one of an ownership strategy where we have significant headcount in a given market. Uh, I've now been given the daunting task of retaining this real estate and trying to sublease the remaining space because financially, uh, at this point in time, for us to try and sell the properties and move into lease space doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, you know, the mergers and acquisitions, the number sounds really big. You get really used to it. It's almost, it's almost as though, you know, I have this day job, right, where I manage Oracle's um, North American portfolio, but gosh, if we don't have an acquisition, it's almost like, <laughs> you know, yep. like you're waiting for the next shoe to drop. Well, I have, a, you know, I have a busy day to begin with, but when I have an acquisition, it's, it's, it's absolute frenzy because internally there's so much coordination that has to happen with all these internal groups. It's not only getting the users on board and the users being our internal customers back to that CRM function, but I have to coordinate with our global IT group to make sure when I move them to the Oracle site, I haven't turned off any of their connectivity or any of their systems. So a uh, very exciting aspect of my job, and like I said, I'm happy to be the queen. You know, I would say in our experience, and we're kind of getting off from the financial question, which we we'll we'll get come back, back to. to but yeah, yeah, yeah. But just uh, our experience is that um, the earlier uh, corporate real estate, or in our cases, the extension of corporate real estate, is brought into an acquisition opportunity or decision, the better off that organization will be. And, it, 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 and in many cases, we are brought in with our client before a deal is done to confidentially assess the real estate portfolio of that target organization. Uh, you know, we, we worked very closely as an example with Whirlpool when they bought Maytag. And you've got facilities that are duplicative all over the country. And so what, what if this happens, which it did, but if that happens, what, what is the portfolio going to look like afterward? And, and those are huge financial decisions that during a negotiation you could, you know, bring to the table before closing that deal uh, and, and, and have a significant, hopefully positive impact on it. That's a really important point. Um, oftentimes what we do is, again, you know, we'll go to our service provider, and when we're in that period of uh, uh, what we call due diligence, you know, we'll ask them to advise us and give us some income projections relative to some of the properties, or, you know, again, in certain cases, we too have to project, um, are we going to be able to get any income out of this or not? So um, that's a really valuable service that they provide to us. I'll, I'll try to tackle this quickly, unless, Ralph, you want to tackle it. No, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> um, just quickly on the financial side, th it's a tricky question because uh, I, I think that the impact of what's happening in the economy right now in the financial sector is, you know, to be determined. Uh, if you have something like a B of A and a LaSalle Bank, I think that's more straightforward because it's happening, you know what's happening, and so on and so forth. Uh, if there are other, you know, Bear Stearns has 80,000 feet in downtown Chicago. What, is J.P. Morgan going to take all that space if, if that if they close on that deal? I, I don't know. Who, who knows? So, yeah, and, and pardon me. Yeah, sure. So there's a lot that that's that 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 sector is you know being watched carefully to see see what may happen, uh, and then you'll see the resulting real estate things that that that, that happen as a result. But, uh, you know, again, even in that instance, it'll be up to the acquiring company um, what properties they decide to retain. So, I mean, yes, it's probably a fair expectation that there's some disposal that'll take place. 
but you know, if I had a crystal, I always say if I had a crystal ball, I'd be a rich woman, right? Because, I mean, who can predict sometimes what's going to happen? I wouldn't have been able to predict four years ago that we as a company would embark on this growth by acquisition strategy, right? It's worked out very successfully for us, but we too, I mean, if I look at the amount of square footage globally that we've acquired, which, you know, again, is a pretty big number, um, I've dispo we've disposed of 74% of that. Um, and, you know, like I said, that in and of itself is nothing to sneeze at. I think it's a fair expectation to expect with some of these bank consolidations, you may see the same thing. And, I mean, we all can sit here and speculate. You know, we went through the SNL crisis, and, you know, now you're seeing this thing with, you know, the uh, investment banks, right? Um, you know, should have happened, but it did. And like I said, as a result, you'll see the trickle down effect into real estate. What do you guys tell me? Um, how many of you, obviously, you walked into the corporate real estate panel for a reason. So, are you thinking about the service provider side of corporate real estate, or are you interested in, in being on the inside of a corporation? Or are you trying to decide that, and that's why you come to a panel? Are you just wondering what corporate real estate really is? Yeah, provide service. Service providers. And so, is that turning it back to you guys um, to be very realistic? Where are the jobs? Are they on the service provider side, or are they on the? <laughs> They're on with the Dan. Side? There we go. Well, sounds like you, you've got a robust group too. I have a robust group, but Which, again, but you're I'm, unusual. I'm very, right. very unusual. If you look at myself or my counterparts in the industry. Most people, and even the companies we acquired, have chosen to outsource those services. And again, it's just been part of our internal philosophy as a company to keep some of that in-house. And you know, believe me, there's days when um, it's not always so fun to uh, be managing some of those particular services. Mm -hmm. Where, you know, I would strongly consider outsourcing. Um, but, like I said, it always comes down to a dollars and cents issue for so, us. So, Dan, where are you recruiting? How do you get your resumes? Where do you guys look? Uh, we, uh, we recruit, depends on what we may be looking for. If we're looking for undergrads, we look at some select schools uh, in, across the country, and the undergrads may come in in analyst-type positions to help us uh, work with a corporate client uh, to help do financial analysis. Uh, to help do some underwriting and, and the investment side of the business, uh, to come into the property management business, to come into the facility management business, the, the project management. So lots of opportunities across. Uh, we, we hire MBAs to come in that typically, most cases come in without real estate experience and come in and we teach them the real estate experience and mostly go into the corporate world because that's where that st strategy kind of comes in and that strategic thinking about what they're doing. We hire a lot of professional hires, people that have been in the industry for a long time because you cannot, you know, hire somebody uh, off the street to replace, you know, a, a seasoned 15, 20-year broker that's, that, that knows everything about the city of Chicago. So, so we hire across the board uh, and across the different, different service lines. Other questions? What organizations um, should... The, um, should this group be looking oh, at? Oh, that's a layup. That is a layup. <laughs> How much time you got? <laughs> well, let me put it more specifically. Okay, organizations are great. You go, you go out, you do the old social thing and all that. That's great. You hand out your resume. Give me specific um, certifications that you think are going to put these grads into a different league because they're, they've got something that's really, really tangible and very, very... Um, recognized in the industry? Um, that's, a, that's a tough question, you know. It, it, um, it's going to depend upon uh, what expertise and you want to pursue. Um, I do promote, you know, Coronet. I brought some applications here. And the reason I like this art association is because it does consist of everybody from all different functionalities. So you may have an expertise in finance and you join a real estate finance association or you may have an expertise in project management and you join a project management. But 
the way the world works these days, it, it, there's a, it's a lot about collaboration. And so something like the Cornet, where there's people that are attorneys there, there's people that are brokers, architects, project management, there's people that do nothing but sell carpeting. Um, you get all different walks of life and you can start to see and relate to, you know, people from all those different areas. In terms of a, you know, they offer, you know, a designation, there's a Master of Corporate Real Estate designation that you can actually go through and pursue with them. And that says something. It says that you've, you know, focused on the corporate real estate side. If that's your, you know, if that's your interest, you can't beat it. I think it's, you know, definitely a designation that makes sense. Um, so, but, you know, in the real estate side, there's a CCIM designation. Uh, if you want to go after more of a broker type of a, a role, if you want to get into that transaction business, I think uh, you know Dan would certainly say that's the that's the way you should go. Maybe a CCIM. Um, if you want to do facility management, there's a certified property manager designations that you can get into. Uh, so they have associations that are nothing but people that come together that are property managers. So, but if you want to get a, a, a broad uh, and of course you can get in, you know a member of the you know architectural institute uh, so you know, if you want to get a, a broad display uh, uh, exposure to a lot of different uh, functionalities you know something like you know Cornet is not a bad uh, place to start and I would just add to that uh, I don't underestimate the opportunities in those uh, you may not think of those as opportunities to do two things learn about the business, but then network as well. And whether it's Cornet or in Chicago, there's another group called NAIOP, N-A-I-O-P, which is more of a, 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 a brokerage type organization or for property management, uh, something called BOMA, which is the Building Owners Management Association. Uh, but, you know, I'll give you a quick story. I was attending a NAIOP event uh, and a uh, young man was there. He might have been the only one in the room that was not all the industry people go to this thing, and it was a panel on, on something going on in real estate in the industry. This young man was there. He met our global CEO who happened to be there. He met our America CEO. Uh, I met him. I hired the guy within a couple of weeks. And, and just because he, it, it's, it, he was there to learn, but he, he was also there to network. Uh, so don't underestimate what Ralph is saying about these organizations. Uh, I have a question. Um, most of the you know corporations that you're working with, I mean, we're all kind of becoming more and more of like global citizens in mm -hmm. some respect. So, you know, you have corporations that you're providing service to, and you know, obviously your businesses are all spanned across the globe. How does that work? Is is the relationship worked out of the U.S. or you're helping on the grounds? And um, is it is the strategy that if you have a relationship with say Oracle in the U.S. Everywhere they're trying to do business, you're going you're going to continue that relationship. I mean, that would be ideal, but is that how you see it through? Um, well, in the outsourcing game, uh, you you are hired to perform a particular function, mm -hmm. uh, whether that's to perform a service or a number of services in a region of the country and across the country or across the globe. Uh, Motorola is an example. We do all of their. Uh, facility management work as well as their transactions. Uh, I won't use the M word, but we do all of <laughs> Microsoft uh, transactions all over the world. Uh, and so the way that we serve those clients is by putting teams in place on site, very senior people that manage all of our services and interface into their real estate executives uh, to provide them with all of our services all over the globe. And then it is that team that coordinates our people as well as works with those that clients' people wherever that may be, whether it's in, you know, Mumbai or whether it's in, in, in the Philippines or whether it's in Shanghai or yep. yeah. But but back to your point, mm -hmm. it depends on the clients. Yep. Some clients, like in our case, I independently make my decisions um, for my region. Okay, so I can choose whatever service providers I want to partner with. My counterpart over in India may choose someone totally different. Okay. So it really depends on the company okay. as to what their structure is How and who's in power. Exactly. exactly. Okay. Yeah. I'd like to add to his question. Um, you know, with the, with the possible, say, possible slowdown of the economy here, 
are your organizations actively seeking for opportunities abroad to make up for, for the losses here? And where, if they are? Well, you know, for us, it's always about what's the next biggest growth location. For a long time, it was India, then it was China. Um, now we're also looking at the fact that, okay, you know, you know, the dollar's not so good against some of the other currencies. Uh, maybe in certain lines of our business, uh, bringing some of the functions back here to the U.S. and trying to identify some low-cost locations here uh, might be better. So I think it's all about chasing that low-cost location and trying to figure out how does that fit into your business strategy. For us in our business, service provider, huge growth in Asia opportunity, huge growth. The commercial real estate business isn't as sophisticated in Asia, but as Western companies have become even more global, uh, whether it's through manufacturing or whether it's through service or, or software development, uh, these uh, markets that have lots of labor in them, they've, they've matured from a real estate perspective as well. So that's a big growth opportunity for us. Europe is Europe tends to be Europe, and you know it's it's series of countries, uh, which is fairly steady. And then the U.S. has continued to perform pretty well. Okay. Yeah. And Europe's a little difficult because mm -hmm. you get into certain issues like you know their union structure with their workers and a lot of protectionist currency language. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So you know again, too much is too um, It really all depends. Like I said. We started with India, we went mm -hmm. to China, now we're trying to figure out, you know, where's the next big bet, and usually it's not just the high-tech companies, it's financial institutions, it's everybody else jumping on the same, same bandwagon. Yeah, the big uh, statistic was 3.3 million jobs will leave the United States um, by, by 2015. That represents 660 million square feet of real estate and they're going to some of these places that you're talking about. I saw with my own eyes your building in Hyderabad, India, which was fascinating. And I saw Microsoft, Target, every American corporation I could think of. And they were super class A buildings. And I was driving through the tech park at 3 a.m. in the morning, and the place was lit up. There were people <laughs> out. That's prime time. Yep. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly right. So I could yeah. see where those jobs have, have landed, and it was very interesting. So, so having an international orientation will not hurt you at all. Absolutely. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys.